0: Christian church is dying in the West. That's how the book started. First sentence, right out of the blocks. The Christian church is dying in the West. Arthur went on to say, it might be argued that I'm overstating the case that the Western church is just simply having a bad day and that it will eventually come right. Surely God will not let his church come to death, will he? Christian church is dying in the West. Now this book is not, the book I was reading was not a, a book about, by someone who was complaining about what was wrong with the church. There are plenty of those. Plenty of those. Plenty of budding authors who want to write those kinds of books. This was written by a man, his name is Michael Riddell. He's a pastor from New Zealand, and he is concerned not that there is something wrong with the church, but that that the church is out of touch with the culture. And the culture is going right by it and doesn't even notice that it's dying. I'll give you the title of the book, you can read it later. The title is Threshold of the Future, Reforming the Church in the Post-Christian He goes on to say that it is not only possible for Christianity to falter in the West, it is apparent that the sickness is well advanced, and we do ourselves no service to deny what appears to be terminal illness. Then he goes on to give some of the symptoms as to why he would say such a thing. According to David Barrett, 53,000 attenders are leaving the church in Europe and in North America every week and they're not coming back. Whether through dissatisfaction or moral failure or simply impatience with the demands of the task, congregational leaders are resigning in large numbers and they're not coming back. Folks outside the faith, regard Christians as having placed themselves apart and above the rest of ordinary people and really don't feel like we have anything in common with them anymore. Rapidly increasing numbers are finding it possible to believe in reincarnation, spirit guides, extraterrestrials, ET phone home. And aside from Riddell's contents in his book, um, those of you that have introduction and ministry with me know that tarot card reading and the horoscope and reincarnation are part of the belief systems of folks who call themselves born again. Now to... To traditional Christians, this is unfamiliar territory, but what that says is, is that these folks are, are, are spiritually open. That they're looking for answers. Perhaps more open than any other generation has been in recent memory. Unfortunately, these folks who are spiritual explorers walk right by the church, they are sure that their personal quest for the spiritual has, will not be found inside those doors. To them, contemporary Christian, the contemporary Christian church is a relic of a bygone era. It is a monument to religious sentiment in the past, and it is irrelevant to the pilgrimage that they find themselves on today. The Christian church is dying in them. The latest issue of Sojourner's Magazine, Phil Yancey wrote, or Phil Yancey said, if you just ask somebody around the world, tell me what stands out to you about the United States, they'll say military power, unbelievable wealth compared to the world standards, and sexual license. All three of these are radically anti-Jesus. Jesus. Yancey goes on to say, so how is it that we are viewed as the most Christian country in the world and yet we are characterized by these least Christian characteristics? For the first time in centuries, the Western church has awakened to find itself a shrinking minority in a disinterested and an occasionally hostile Neo-pagan context. told everybody this morning, uh, this was not my idea, this sermon. Especially since I know what everyone has done to make it here, and why you're here, and the steps that you've taken to answer in God's call. But it's the reality of the world that you'll minister to some of you in just about three months. It's the reality of the world that we are all living in and we've got to see really where we are. We are a shrinking minority in the West. Another time, we'll talk about what's happening south of the equator. Christianity is booming there in in South America and Africa, but not here, not where we are. Peter wrote his first epistle during the time when Christians were indeed a minority. It was before the rise to power. It was before they were considered acceptable. It was before they had any political or military influence. Life as a Christian in the first century meant that you lived among disinterested and occasionally hostile pagans. Yet despite the odds, Peter encouraged those early believers to rise to the challenge. To rise to the challenge in the face of daily opposition. So take the word and turn to his letter. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and we we'll want to read 9 through 12. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. The Word of the Lord. You can hear Peter's Peter's word to them, can't you? Rise to the challenge. He's not whitewashing the difficulties. He's not downplaying the realities. He knows exactly who these folks are and exactly the kind of world they're living in and he calls them to live the life that God has given to them. One of the commentators about this passage said this, in Peter's writing, Christian conduct not only presupposes enemies, but is largely defined in relation to those enemies. Say it one more time. Christian conduct not only presupposes enemies but is largely defined in relation to those enemies. It's not just good enough to get along with those folks who think like us. The test of our faith really is in relation to those folks who have nothing to do with our faith, isn't it? That's the challenge. Now he he provides Actually, let me, let me back up a second. The book that I quoted from at the beginning um, actually goes on, I think, to have and has some very significant suggestions about how we engage in the culture that is ready to walk right on past us. And it's a book that I think is worth, worth having, worth reading. But for all of those suggestions, they really boil down to the kinds of things that Peter says here in, in these verses. Verses 11 and 12 in particular. Live such good lives, excuse me, dear friends, verse 11. I urge you, urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. Anybody here know that sinful desires shouldn't be a part of a Christian's life? This is an easy one. What the New International Version has done for us, though, has, they have translated, they have given us a theological translation, and I, I want you to hear the literal. It is really taken from the Greek word sarx. Those of, us who, those of you who have been around here long enough to know that sarx is translated flesh. So the literal translation really says to abstain from sexual, excuse me, to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now sometimes in Paul's writings, that has to do with the theological category of evil. But in this particular case, Really, what Peter's talking about here is the everyday, ordinary stuff that we live with. It's physical and motivation and intent. It is those kinds of things that are centered on self preservation and material well being. Anything wrong with trying to maintain ourselves? Answer is no. No, I mean we want to remain healthy folks, right? All in favor say aye? Okay, but but what happens when that self-preservation gets in the way of expressing itself in our faith? That's what Peter's concerned with. That the everyday ordinary stuff of living and making payments and, and having food to, to eat, and all of those kinds of things that are a part of our everyday living can sometimes get in the way of our being obedient. He was concerned that these folks in those days might compromise their faith for one of the kinds of things that we take for granted. So he says to us, he says, don't let fleshly lusts, Sinful or otherwise, get in the way of your obedience to God. Don't let fleshly lust, sinful or otherwise, get in the way of your your being obedient to the faith. He's saying, rise to the challenge. Step up here. Rise to the challenge. The other thing that I, other Greek. Uh, word that I want to point out because it helps us understand what he's saying here is in the next verse. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. It's that word pagans. If you have a new American Standard Bible you'll see that they translated it Gentiles. It's the word that is typically could also be translated nation. And what Peter is saying to us and what he was saying to them is that when you live, as you live, even though they accuse you, these folks who are on the outside of the faith, that's who I want you to have in mind. Those folks who are on the outside of the faith. They're not insiders, they're outsiders. His hope is... Peter's hope is, is that the folks who were slandering and despising the Christians, even as he wrote, would somehow change their minds because of the lives he saw in those folks who said they followed the Christ. Let me say it one more time. Peter's hope for those who now despised and slandered the Christian community was that they would change their minds because of the way they saw us live. Because of how we responded to our enemies. Because of the attitudes that we showed to those who believe something other than us. And Peter's hoping for more than just accommodation. and He's hoping, he's hoping for more than just hoping these folks will just leave us alone. Look at the end of the phrase in verse end of the verse in verse 12 See your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us Now this is not the kind of glorification that will happen at the end of time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord whether they want to or not What Peter is hoping for is that they'll join the chorus and that they'll stand with us and everyone else who believes in the Christ and sing praise to God, glorify Him on the day that He comes, and they'll do that. They'll do that, He's sure, because they will see us live the life that God has given to us. He's encouraging us, encouraging them to rise to the challenge. There's a story of a a conqueror who had run over one village after another and he came to this next village and took it just like he had done all the rest. And inside this village there was this old priest. As the conqueror went by, everybody bowed but the priest. The conqueror said, Don't you know that I'm the one who can have you torn apart without batting an eye? The priest replied, this Christian priest replied, Don't you know that I'm the one who can be torn apart without batting an eye? It's a call to a life that so exhibits the change that even though they accuse us, Peter says, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. From the commentary, again, Peter's vision is this, that the exemplary behavior of Christians will change the hearts and the minds of the accusers and, in effect, overcome evil with good. He knows that human life is short. He knows that it carries no guarantees of prosperity or even safety. And if he were writing to us, he'd say, and I know how much work those syllabi I have for you to do. And I know how far you are from the place that you grew up. And I know how much distance there is between you and the people that you know better than the folks around here. And I know the cost of living in Colorado Springs is higher than the place you came from. And I know they don't pay much. And all God's people said No guarantees, no guarantees of prosperity or safety, but his basic conviction is this that the believers who are reading the letter and their God will be vindicated. And so he said to them without without pause, without hesitation. and without any reluctance at all. Live your lives so that those who accuse you will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. I already know that you're about all that, otherwise you wouldn't be here. But there's a deeper challenge here, isn't it? That the things we do as a part of our preparation really become an expression of, of thanksgiving and grace to God. They really become acts then of glorification, proclaiming His praise because you get all your homework in on time. Amen. I wasn't quite sure how to, how to make that application other than to. Encourage you to continue to do what you're already doing and continue to turn it over to him as your testimony. Because you do know people are watching. People you work with. People you live with. People you worship with. Some of them are pagans and some of them aren't but all of them are going to be ministered to by the way you approach the life of God. If you have a colleague online. Her name is Lauren Webb. She's the pastor of City Hope Church of the Nazarene in Pittsburgh, PA, and I'm just getting to know her this past week, but I can tell already she understands what we've been talking. In one of her homework assignments, I asked them to respond to different quotes from an article that most of you have read already. This is what she said. At the City of Hope, we embrace everyone. We now have three gay young men as a part of our outreach. Some of the more mature adults tried to make their presence a problem. I preach what the word says about homosexuality. One of them got saved. I counsel them on deliverance. We reach out to the senior citizens, whether it's black or white. We feed the community from our food bank. I tell the people we can love someone into changing. So live your lives. From experience, she goes on. From experience, I know that some come to stay and some come to leave. It's the Holy Ghost that woos people here. A young lady told me a few weeks ago that she was, quote, drawn to me, and that sent up a red flag. I simply told her that she must come looking for Jesus, not any man or any woman. When some people make an exodus from the local church, they, ask, they act as though the church will close without them. They are free to come, free to leave. Pastor Law. Then one more thing. She says, the modern church, and this is homework, the modern church is an extension of the early church. The church grew from 12 to 3,000 to millions in a couple of thousand years. We're still preaching, we're still healing, we're still saving souls today. For those ministers who are discouraged, you must remember to not be weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. You must press your way through, and the blessing is in the press. Blessing is in the press. I'm used to sing a song. Not for ease or worldly treasure. Nor for fame, my prayer shall be. Gladly will I toil and suffer. Only, only let me walk with thee. Peter saying, Rise. Rise to the challenge. You are. You are. A chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Rise to the challenge. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not obtained mercy, but now you have mercy. Rise to the challenge, Friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Rise to the challenge. Live such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Rise to the chin. May it be so. Just a chord, would you?